you do have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapters 9 and 10, and we'll look at these chapters in just a moment. We've been in a study through Exodus, and we're in a section that records 10 specific plagues that God poured out upon Egypt just before he led his people out of their captivity. And that word plague comes from a Latin term that means severe wound or blow. And that's what these 10 plagues really were. And God says in chapter 12 that it was his way of executing judgment on the false gods of Egypt. And so it's really against that backdrop of idolatry that you and I really are able to understand the significance, the full significance of these plagues of judgment. And everything in ancient Egypt Egypt was really linked to one of its gods. Uh, The gods that they worshipped were always some means to an end. Uh, They promised money and prosperity and pleasure, and that's really what people were after as they were worshipping these fertility gods or what have you. And while that may seem primitive to us, the fact of the matter is we're still prone to worship and go after the very same things even in our modern time. Uh, And the word that the Bible uses to describe this is idolatry. And idolatry is not simply an issue among many issues with fallen humanity, but rather idolatry is the fundamental issue with our fallen humanity. Uh, We all worship something. And the problem with our fallen humanity is that we worship anything and everything but the God who made us in his own image. And so at its most basic level, idolatry involves the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Even the first commandment that God gives his people upon leading them out of their Egyptian bondage, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That is, nothing must come between me and you in your life. There's nothing that is to occupy that foremost uh, primary place in your life. Nothing from creation that I'm to look to as being my ultimate source or my strength or my salvation. And so idolatry then is really the worship of God's substitutes. And really an idol can be anything. Anything that occupies your mind and your heart and absorbs your imagination more than God does. And and really, your idol is whatever you seek to provide you with what only God himself can provide you. Now, one thing that we've seen thus far from these chapters in Exodus is that God's judgment involves really a reversal of the entire created order uh, in Egypt. Uh, He's taking order and reducing it to chaos. And you think about it, that's very different. It's the opposite from what he does in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where the Bible records the creation account. God brings order. Uh, He speaks life into existence. Well, now he's taking that created order in Egypt and he's he's reducing it, bringing it to chaos. And, And it's really a visible representation of what idolatry will do in a person's life. The reason that there's so much chaos in the world today, it can be attributed to man's sin and our idolatry and the fact that other things are enthroned in our hearts and lives other than the worship of God himself. 
And so the things that Egypt looked to as its source and as its strength, all of these things are brought to ruin. And even the gods that they were supposed, uh, the gods that were supposed to uphold all of these things, well, God is proving that these are helpless, powerless saviors that cannot save their worshipers. And so in chapter 9, I want you to find your place with me at verse 13. And, and what we've done the last couple of weeks, I've taken at least nine of the ten plagues, and we've sort of uh, divided them up into three different categories. And there's really a pattern that you see uh, with each of these plagues. For example, the first plague, um, uh, the fourth plague, the seventh plague, they all begin with a, a particular way where God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's down by the river or by water. And the significance of that is that the Nile River was really a source of worship both to Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. And so you see this pattern. Well, with the second plague in each series, God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh in his house. The third plague in each series, there is no warning whatsoever. And so you see this pattern in each of these plagues. So uh, in keeping with sort of the way that we've approached these plagues, I want to read uh, the seventh plague, but this morning we'll actually look at plagues seven, eight, and nine from chapters nine and 10. So if you found your place there, verse 13, Exodus 9, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now again, that's the purpose behind ultimately these, these plagues of judgment that you may know that I am God, and besides me, there is no other. God says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in just a severe hailstorm. But it's actually a really scary thing. And that's a normal hero, not to mention a supernatural storm such as this one. I'll never forget, Anita and I, we, um, when we first got married, we were living just north of Spartanburg, South Carolina, just across the state line in North Carolina. 
But one afternoon, one summer, we were driving down highway number nine. We were going down to Spartanburg. And I mean, the clouds were black and billowing. I knew there was a storm up ahead. But as we drove into that thing, it started hailing. And I kid you not, the way that the hail came down in that storm, it, when it was all said and done, you looked around, it looked like it had snowed or sleeted. I mean, it was just, you couldn't see the ground. The ground was white. I was driving a little Honda Accord, front-wheel drive, and I thought, man, if I had a four-wheel drive, I would need it just to be able to get through this. It came down, I mean, in buckets. Now, imagine what the land of Egypt is experiencing with this supernatural storm as part of the judgment of God. The hail was so large and so destructive that it struck down everything uh, in Egypt. Verse 24, there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, now listen to Pharaoh's attitude here. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God is the one who's sovereign over the elements. The elements are not sovereign in and of themselves. The gods that you worship and claim to have authority, they have no power. You need to learn from this that God alone is Lord and, and the earth belongs to him. And Moses says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. For the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So here's, even in the midst of judgment, there's, there's, there's evidence of the mercy of God. And so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, struck out, or stretched out his hands to the Lord. The thunder and the hail ceased. The rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. I want to speak once more from this subject, God versus the idols of Egypt. Because again, in these plagues, God is striking at the very heart of the Egyptian religious system and showing how ultimately it's bankrupt and idolatrous to the core. Now, even though Egypt's religion was complicated, there really was a threefold classification of Egypt's deities and gods, uh, whether they were river gods or gods associated with the land or gods associated with the sky. And when you look at each of the 10 plagues, you'll notice that they involve in some way the river or the land and the sky. And so the plagues are God's way of showing how the created elements are all under his sovereign direction. 
under his omnipotent control, and they're not elements to be worshipped themselves. So again, we've grouped these plagues into three sets of three, while the last plague that we'll look at will stand alone, which by the way, the last plague uh, for Israel, it's Passover, which is very appropriate that we'll look at Passover and the, the last plague in Egypt, the death of the firstborn on Palm Sunday or Passion Week because it points us ultimately to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the first series of plagues that we saw, plagues one, two, and three, these were plagues that somehow involved what I would say uh, is mental distress for the Egyptians. Beginning with those very things that the Egyptians looked to as their source, such as the Nile River, which they worshiped, which flowed right through the heart of Egypt. In many ways, it was considered to be the lifeblood of Egypt, and so it's significant then that that's the very first thing that God touches in judgment, and he turns it to blood. Well, the first set of three plagues is followed by the second set of three plagues, and these are plagues that bring physical discomfort. And you'll notice that with each plague, it would seem that the situation intensifies. Uh, things get more difficult and more heavy as the hand of God's judgment uh, becomes heavier with each passing plague. And all of these plagues uh, involving their physical bodies, such as the boils and blisters that break out upon the Egyptians uh, with um, the sixth plague. These bring physical discomfort to the Egyptians. Well, this morning, I want us to see plagues seven, eight, and nine, how these are plagues that really bring economic disaster to Egypt. So again, God is reducing the whole situation in Egypt. He's bringing it to utter chaos. He's taking the glory of Egypt and, and, and taking it down. So with the first three plagues, God judges those things that Egypt looked to as its source. The second set of three plagues, God judges those things that they trusted in as their strength. And then these next three plagues, such as the plague of hail that we've read, that'll be followed by a plague of locust, which will then be uh, followed by a plague of darkness. In these plagues, God is going to judge the very things that they cling to as their salvation. So don't think about it. Everything that they look to as their source, what they cling to as their strength, what they look to as their ultimate salvation, God is showing how each of these are empty and hollow saviors that cannot save. Now, the fact of the matter is, all of us look to something or someone whom we believe is the answer to our problems. So God is judging those very things that they look to as, as the salvation of Egypt, their crops, uh, the sun, which they worshiped, the highest deity in the Egyptian system uh, was Amun-Ra, associated with the sun. They associated him with this cycle of life and rebirth and regeneration. And so the very things that they trusted in as their salvation, God is showing how these are empty saviors that cannot save their worshipers. And you know the central message of the Bible is that God alone is man's hope of salvation. All other would-be saviors are powerless and empty. 
But you see, this doesn't keep humanity from seeking out would-be saviors. You ask anyone what they believe is the answer to society's problems, and you'll hear a variety of answers. Everybody has something in mind when it comes to the salvation of humanity, whether it be political saviors. And somehow we think that there's going to be some politician who's going to be able to save us and bring us out of the mess that we've created for ourselves. Or educational saviors. That, that really the problem with humanity is that we don't have enough education, and so if we just have the right education and the right degree, then this will lift us out of the mess that we're in. Or even financial saviors, economic saviors, scientific saviors, religious saviors. You go on and on right down the line. Everybody has some idea of what they believe man's problem is, society's problem is, and there's got to be some solution. But you see, as long as you're looking within the created order itself for the solution to your problems and the salvation from your problems, you're gonna be, it's like a dog chasing its tail. Because there is only one hope of salvation for the world, and men and women, it is Jesus Christ. It is the Son of God himself. Jesus alone qualifies to be the Savior of humanity. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Your salvation and your hope is found in me alone. So again, one of these phrases that we see repeated throughout these chapters in Exodus is this phrase, that you may know that I am the Lord. So through this series of judgments, God is making himself known to the Egyptians while all of their false saviors would be proven powerless. Now notice with me this plague, plague number seven, how it involves this disturbance of hail. God is going to prove that he's sovereign over the created elements. He's already demonstrated this, but here is going to be just a, uh, it's going to be ramped up a notch or two. He's going to prove that he is superior over the elements involving the sky. The goddess Isis, or Nut, that they worshipped, uh, which was particular gods and goddesses associated with the sky and the elements of the storm and all of this. God is going to prove that these are empty false saviors, the inventions of man that cannot save. And so God's purpose in the judgment then is explained there, really from verse 13 through 19. You know, Pharaoh's refused to humble himself even though his world is falling apart. And it's interesting, from chapter seven all the way through chapter nine, we're told six times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But if you glance back up at verse 12 here in chapter 9, we're told for the very first time that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, you know that in the Bible, uh, seven is the divine number. Seven is the number that's often associated with completion. And the idea is Pharaoh's been given plenty of opportunities to repent, but now there comes a point in time when he's given over to his pride. And yet, despite his own resistance, the purpose of God ultimately is going to be realized in his life. And what's that purpose? Well, verse 15, God says, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's saying, I've not had to do it the way that I've chosen to do it. I could have done it all at once. 
But the plagues reveal the power of Almighty God to the Egyptian people. God is teaching a lesson here. He's showing his, and by the way, he's also giving them time and opportunity to repent. Why is there 10 plagues, and why does God seem to drag this out? Because even in the midst of judgment, God is prepared to extend mercy. Each time that Pharaoh seems to, to change his mind, he calls for Moses, asks Moses to pray. Each time he does that, God calls off the plague. Why is that? Well, because God's prepared to extend mercy. There's 10 plagues, but don't miss the fact that these 10 plagues are 10 opportunities for Pharaoh and for the people of Egypt to turn to God. So that by the time you get to the end of it all, you'll discover that many of them did turn to God. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 says that a mixed multitude went up with Israel out of Egypt after the last plague. Who was that mixed multitude? There were a lot of Egyptians who said, you know what? <laughs> Where were y'all? We believe you're God. We want to go where you go. And, and by the way, it's interesting to me that you look back in church history that when the gospel first began to spread, you want to know where the center of real gospel ministry and gospel preaching was in those early days of Christianity? It wasn't Asia. It wasn't Europe. It was North Africa, which is significant to me. And it's interesting that four of, of the leading greatest theologians that the church has ever produced came right out of North Africa. I'm talking about Augustine, uh, Tertullian, uh, Origen, Athanasius. These men uh, were in a land that long had a history of God's judgment upon idolatry. And so God is saying here in Exodus, I'm going to convince the Egyptians of who I am. And guess what? He sure did it, didn't he? And you get to uh, Acts chapter 2, and you discover that on the day of Pentecost, uh, there are people from all different parts of the world, uh, and, and they hear the apostles preaching the gospel, but they're doing it in different languages. And guess who uh, Luke says was represented there even in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? He says they were those uh, from Egypt. Isn't that an amazing thing? So when you read the Exodus and you think, well, don't read it and think, well, Israel is better than Egypt and that kind of thing. Why is it that God is rescuing his people? It's only by means of his grace. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he's going to tell the Israelites, it wasn't because uh, you were more numerous than any other nation or special. It's only because of my mercy and my grace and the covenant that I established with your fathers, the fact that I've set my love upon you. But from the very beginning, God has always desired the salvation of all peoples. The nations have been on God's heart. That's why he calls Abraham in the very beginning. That's why he establishes a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. Now they fail in that. But ultimately, it's so that God can bring his own son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. So that now you look at the church and you consider that the church, the beautiful bride of Christ, is made up of men and women from every nation, tribe, tongue, cultural background. Isn't it an amazing thing that we get to be a part of this wonderful, redemptive work that our God has done? 
So he says there in verse 16, for this purpose, Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And all these thousands of years removed from the fact we're still talking about what God did by means of his mighty power in Egypt. So that's God's command to Pharaoh, but then notice God's power, how it's on display in the storm. If Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, judgment will come in the form of this terrible hailstorm. Now, you know, history records a lot of terrible hailstorms that have happened. I read where one occurred in India, April 30th, 1888, killed as many as 246 people with hailstones as large as goose eggs. Wasn't just a few years ago in Colorado that baseball-sized hail plummeted the west side of the Denver metro area, uh, causing what has been the most expensive hailstorm in U.S. history, more than $2.3 billion worth of damage. The point is, hailstorms are serious. And none was worse than the one described right here in this seventh plague. And this is a supernatural storm. And, and you can understand that when you consider the fact that Egypt has an arid desert climate that most years receives less than an inch of rainfall. And even the rain that does fall is it's next to the Mediterranean coastline. So the fact that God is sending this storm of hail and rain and thunder and lightning and fire mingled in, this is nothing short of the miraculous. And yet God is giving sufficient warning. And you'll notice that many of the Egyptians are quick to heed the warning. So that verse 20 says, whoever feared the word of the Lord among Pharaoh's servants, they hurried and basically got all that they had and moved it into the house. And those that didn't heed the word stayed out in the field. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rains came, the floodwaters began to rise, but the house fell and great was the fall of it. Now here's the question. You know that salvation comes by hearing and responding to the word of God right? That's the way that salvation always comes in a person's life. When you hear the word of God, it, don't, don't let it go in one ear and out the other, but no, respond to the word. Respond to the invitation from God to receive Christ as your Savior, because the only person who will be saved from the storm of God's judgment is the person who's safe within Christ. And so this is a major lesson then that's being conveyed through this seventh plague. Respond to God's word with faith and obedience, never with delay, never with procrastination, never with hesitation. Because unless we believe in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where else can we go? There's nowhere else you can turn. But you're left exposed and then notice how God's patience ultimately is being tested by Pharaoh's refusal here. Things become so bad in the seventh plague that, God, uh, that Pharaoh sends for Moses. And, and listen to his words here. He says, this time I have sinned. He acknowledges that the Lord is in the right. Me and my people, we're in the wrong. 
And that very well may have been the very first time in his life that there had been an admission of wrongdoing in Pharaoh's life. Because it wasn't customary for Pharaoh to admit that he was in the wrong. Pharaoh didn't do that kind of thing. One scholar has even said that it was customary in those days that individuals who approached Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground, while invoking him as a perfect God and exalting his beauty. So I guess, I guess he literally was surrounded by yes men all his life who answered to his beck and call. Nobody ever had a word of criticism that they wanted to give to old Pharaoh. So don't miss what's happening in his life that now he's admitting that he and his people were in the wrong and God is in the right. He's confessing that he is a sinner. And that all sounds good, but it still falls way short of genuine repentance in his life because he's not confessing his sins to God, nor does he confess all of his sin. He says in verse 27, this time I've sinned. I want to say, what about those other six times you were told to let the people go, and yet you refused? He's sorry that he's getting plagued by a storm, but he's not really sorry for the problem of his sin. And he is typical of the person who hates the consequences of their sin, but they never learn to hate the sin itself. Oftentimes, we become so sick of the consequences of sin, yet fail to turn from the sin itself. We deal with symptoms, and we deal with stuff strictly on a symptomatic surface level when, when the gospel wants to get to the heart of the issue, and, and the heart of the issue is my heart and your heart. And so he says, you plead to the Lord for me. Moses says he's going to do so, but he understands that Pharaoh doesn't yet fear the Lord he, he's he's, he's, he's uh, got something to fall back on according to verse 31 and verse 32. The loss was bad, but there was still something that he could fall back on. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart one more time, and he doesn't let the people go. Now, that's the seventh plague. Now, we're not going to read it, but you move into chapter 10. Plague number eight involves devastation that's brought by locusts. Whatever was left of the fruit trees and the vegetation, whatever was left over from the hail, the locusts are going to take. And when locusts are referred to in the Bible, it's always a picture of judgment. And the plague of locusts was a really big deal in an ag uh, agricultural society like ancient Egypt. So this would have been something catastrophic. So notice it begins with the command that Pharaoh receives there in the first part of chapter 10. Once more, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh even though his heart is hardened. God's going to show signs among the Egyptians so that his people will have a story to tell their grandchildren. Moses obeys. He says to Pharaoh in verse 3, Thus says the Lord, How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Which, by the way, that's an appropriate question for anybody who's resisting the will of God. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Maybe you're in a situation, you're in a stalemate, with a, going back and forth with somebody, just insisting that you're in the right, and they're insisting that they're in the right. I want to ask this question of you. How long before you humble yourself? How long before you get broken before Almighty God? James says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You can humble yourself before God, or you can be humiliated 
which will it be? And so God says to Pharaoh, if you refuse, I'm going to bring locusts into your country and they'll cover the face of the land. And then that's followed by a compromise that Pharaoh offers. Now notice in verse 7, Pharaoh's servants here, they're telling him to pay attention. They've had enough. And they're saying, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And the word they use there, it's the Hebrew word avad, which means um, uh, destroyed or vanished. They're saying, do you not realize that the glory of Egypt has vanished? The land has been brought to a place of complete ruin. And it would seem like Pharaoh's willing to listen, but you'll notice his attitude in verse 10. He's still resistant to God's will. He'll let the men go worship, but not the women and children. And so it's one more way that he wants to enter into negotiations without surrender. And because he refuses to obey, God sends a plague of locusts, the likes of which Egypt had never seen. And so that's the consequence. The consequences that Pharaoh then faces. God tells Moses, stretch out your hand over the land that locusts may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land. And so the Bible says that God causes a strong east wind to blow all that day and all that night so that by the next day the locust had arrived. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of something like this, but locusts would have absolutely covered every square inch of the ground. Even under natural circumstances, uh, a plague of locusts can strip an entire harvest in no time at all. And this still happens in a lot of places around the world. I thought it odd. I remember reading uh, an article from BBC back in 2020 of all years of a major locust plague that was, that was swarming across parts of, of Africa, Kenya, Uganda, just describing this, the destructive nature of these creatures. In fact, one person even sent me an article this past week about a ma- major plague of locusts in the American Midwest back in the 1870s. And the title of this article described how in one year, more than 12 trillion locusts devastated the Great Plains, and quote, they ate everything but the mortgage. (laughs) The the article said they spread from Montana across to Minnesota, down to Texas, ravaging farmland. They devoured not only crops, but they gnawed on any organic material, including sawdust, leather, the very clothes on people's backs. Now, if that's just a normal swarm of locusts that can bring about that kind of devastation, imagine something supernatural like like what's being described here in this particular plague. This was something that the ancient Egyptians feared, perhaps more than anything else, so much so that there's evidence that they even prayed to a locust god, especially peasants and the poorest among ancient Egyptian society. So again, it's significant here that God is showing that your crops, your bumper harvest, your bumper crops, this is no savior. Your economy, the fertile, lush valley of the Nile, this is no savior. And that's followed up by a confession then that Pharaoh makes in verse 16. He calls for Moses and Aaron and says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now listen, here's his confession. Forgive my sin only this once and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. So again, he's 
He's concerned with consequences, but there's still resistance and pride. But God is merciful. God removes the locust. But as soon as he does, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he does not let the people of Israel go. You get down to verse 21, and and the ninth plague is under description from verse 21 all the way through verse 29, and it involves a plague of darkness over the land. So that God is so proving his superiority and his power over the created elements that he's going to turn out the lights for three days, three long days of darkness in Egypt. And this is significant because the Egyptians worship the sun. They worship Amun-Ra, the chief deity among the Egyptians that they associated with with the the sun. In fact, if you look in Egyptian uh, artifacts and if you go to a a museum where there's an an exhibit uh, devoted to ancient Egyptian culture, you'll see images of the sun disk. And this was associated with the worship of Amun-Ra, whom they held as being chief over the cycle of life and rebirth and resurrection and that kind of thing. So God is going to plunge the entire nation into darkness for three long days while at the same time the Bible says that his people have light. So this is a supernatural event. There's no other way to describe it. And so this is a literal physical darkness, but there's also a spiritual significance behind this because darkness is always associated with sin and death. Proverbs 4.19 says that the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Jesus said in John 3.29, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four uh, that the mind of sinful men is darkened for they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. John says it this way in 1 John 1, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, when Jesus is your savior and Jesus is the one in whom you place all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your confidence, you're walking in light. But when you look for some other savior and some other part of the created order, or you look to yourself and you think that you're sufficient within yourself, the only alternative for you is to walk in darkness. Darkness, blindness. And so these are three terrible plagues where the economy of Egypt is literally brought to ruin and everything that the Egyptians would have trusted in as their savior are all proven empty and powerless saviors. And God is making this point. I alone am salvation. I alone am the hope of life. I alone am sovereign, omnipotent God. And so to bring this to a close, let me just ask you this question, this personal question. Who or what do you look to as your Savior? Now, sure, you're going to say, Pastor, I'm looking to God uh, as my salvation. Jesus is my Savior. I would imagine all of us would say that Jesus is my Savior in this room this morning, being that we're in church, we've gathered to worship. 
But let me ask you really, who, who do you really trust to be your Savior? Who do you really look to as being the ultimate salvation and the answer to the problems that you face in life? Because I think that idolatry is far more subtle than we realize. And at various points in life, we all have idols which serve as functional saviors. Sure, we may say that we believe that Christ alone is Savior, but there's a functional idol, perhaps, a functional Savior that we turn to, that we retreat into to provide us with some salvation that we believe that we need because we all look to something to justify ourselves. So the key principle then from this passage is this, Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is the salvation of my soul. And we learn from all of these plagues, Jesus, he is the source of my life. Jesus is the strength of my heart. And Jesus and Jesus alone is the salvation of my soul. It's interesting to me that John concludes his letter, 1 John. You remember last year we spent so many months going through 1 John, but the very last verse in 1 John chapter 5 after having written about this wonderful salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, John's last instruction is this in 1 John 5, 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may think that's strange for that to be the final instruction that the beloved apostle leaves us with, but that's not strange at all, especially when you consider what he says just before that in verse 20. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't blindly fall behind those political saviors who come along making messianic claims. Don't turn to some type of salvation that you find uh, in, in, in thinking that some relationship with a person is going to save you from the problems and the aches and the longings that you have in your soul. Don't think that you've got to continually put yourself out there for the approval of others and that somehow if you get the approval of others, you're going to find a salvation that you're sorely lacking. No, the Scripture says that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, I have salvation and I have redemption and I've been given life. And anything else that I look to and I trust as my Savior is empty and powerless. I love the fact that God tells Moses in this passage, you know what? Tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt with Egypt. Tell them about the signs that I've worked, the wonders that I've worked, that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, God's going to give his people a story to tell, and they're going to have something to tell their grandchildren. Do you have any stories to tell your children and grandchildren about how God has proven himself to be a strong and mighty savior in your life. If you know Christ, you've got a story to tell. We all talk about and give glory to those that we look to as our saviors. And what does it say about us when, when we don't talk about Jesus and we don't share the hope that we have with Jesus, with our loved ones and with our coworkers and with our neighbors? Can we say that we've really looked to him as our ultimate savior? Have we, do you have a story to tell? 
The hymn writer said, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. We don't sing these stanzas, but listen, I love this stanza. Christ Jesus, pure and holy, without a spot or stain, by sinful hands was taken, crucified and slain, and now the work is finished, the sinner's debt is paid, because on Christ the righteous, the sin of us all was laid. Oh, wonderful redemption, the price for sin is paid, salvation is accomplished, my heart is unafraid, for God has raised Christ Jesus to show the work was done, his glorious resurrection declared the victory won. Thanks be to God for the Savior that we have, the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Jesus and Jesus alone is the salvation of my soul. And yet how easy it is for us to perhaps turn to a substitute, a sort of functional Savior. And these functional Saviors are not that hard to identify. Maybe you need to ask yourself this question. What are my greatest fears? What am I unwilling to live without? What is it that really makes me angry? What do I talk about the most with others? What do I think about the most? Because I think if you answer those questions honestly, it may in fact reveal those persons or those things in your life that you may be tempted to be drawn to as a potential rival savior. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. Not my own moral performance. That doesn't save me. No, it's Jesus and his finished work. Not some financial windfall. That's not my savior. Not a relationship, not a connection, not a politician, not an ideology, not gender, not race, not a group of people. Jesus and Jesus alone saves. Do you know him? with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know him this morning, I encourage you right there where you are, confess your sin and get honest before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and I turn from my sin and I turn to you alone as my Savior who died for me on the cross and rose again from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. This I pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, have your will and way in our hearts and lives as we respond this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.